morning. If you want to open up to Revelation 2. Going through the churches here. Let me pray together one more time before we read this. Father, we just need you, and we're asking for your help. Pray you'd be near to us. Um, Pray you'd help us. We need you. Thank you so much for grace. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Pray that this time would um, be profitable for us. Pray you'd change us by your word and strengthen us and help us. I said in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's read here this next letter to the Church of Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, or to the victor, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right. Well, just going to start uh, by way of review, going through Revelation, talking about how the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus, the revealing of Jesus. And the whole book is pointing to Jesus. And if you want to understand any part of the book, the main question you need to ask is, what is this teaching me about Jesus? How does this point to Jesus? And even the most difficult parts, the most poetic parts, that are difficult to understand, like the beast and some of these other things, are contrasted always to Jesus. And so we're looking at these letters to the churches, which are not figurative, which are real letters to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey, but at the time in the Roman Empire. And Paul, not Paul, John, was on Patmos here and sent this letter, and this messenger went around to all these churches. Today going to review kind of the what we've been talking about in terms of the theme for the whole these the whole series on these letters really is what is the victorious Christian life and where I'm taking that from is this phrase that comes up every time there's actually quite a few phrases that come up every time but this one particular kind of can give a good overview I think of everything to the one who conquers this is in verse 17 in this particular section or to the victor to the victor and we've just been talking about what does it mean to be the victor. And this was really a contrast to Rome. They, uh, 
even coins with the emperor had the word Victor right on there, uh, next to the emperor's picture. So in Rome, the victor was the one who came in with a sword and subdued everyone by force. And is that what we mean? Is that what John means here? Is that what Christ means here when he says that we can be a victor? Well, no, right? Uh, he's talking about something different. We've been talking about what that looks like. And one of the first things we talked about is repentance. Each one of these churches, even the ones with problems, have an opportunity to repent. The victorious Christian life is our life of repentance, that none of us are above repenting. And we can be victorious, not because we clean ourselves up, not because we're awesome in ourselves, but because we turn to Christ. And He receives us through forgiveness of sins and washing by His blood. And we talked about a lot of other other things as well. Love. The first church, you know, lacked love. And coming into today, we're going to talk about Pergamum, this particular church. It's in many ways kind of a contrast to the first. It's going to be kind of a mirror image in reverse. You know, like whenever you used to have, actually kids, most of you don't know this, we used to have these like things with film in them, like cameras with like real film. And you get negatives, which was your picture, but it looked... All the colors were reversed. It was really creepy looking, but with, especially with people. But anyways, um, this letter to Pergamum is in many ways kind of a negative version of Ephesus. It's like all the things Ephesus was doing well, or many of the things, Pergamum is, is doing poorly and, and vice versa. Not in every detail, but you'll see some similarities here. But first, let's just talk about this context. The context that we're in, and so that will help us, I think, apply it. There is... One other note here. The, just side note. Uh, we talked about this tattoo, remember? Um, and I mentioned that one of Jess's family members, it was her uncle, had this tattoo and I asked him about it. Well, what, what is it? And he had cancer. We, and he wanted a reminder. A lot of people talk about survivor, have those little pins, but he wanted to remember that even if he dies, he's a victor in Christ. That's, well, you can pray for him because we just, Jess just shared about um, he is in the hospital and he, he might die. Um, so you can pray for him, but also thank God for him. I mean, he's been an encouragement to me and I've been thinking about even before he, we didn't even know he was in the hospital when we started and put this image here up. But anyways, just a good reminder that this is real, you know, that we are one day we're all going to die and we want to be reminded that we can be victorious in Christ. Um, and we want to live our life for meeting him. Pergamum is up here. Uh, but there's not a lot of... Uh, okay, one difficulty with talking about these cities is there might not be a ton of relevant information left. And I, last week we talked about how there was this big stadium and uh, and it, they just discovered it in 2014 because people built houses on top of it, right? And so... Today, I don't have any slides from the actual city, but we have a really amazing thing. Um, this, this is Mount Vesuvius. There's these cities in Rome, uh, well, in the Roman Empire, now in Italy, present day Italy, Pompeii and Herculaneum. And they were covered in ash about 10 years before Revelation was written. And so everything's preserved. Basically, not everything, but most things are preserved and to a level at which most of the Roman Empire is not because it just covered in ash. 
And so a lot of times when you see statues and things, the noses are broken off. When um, Muslims came through, they broke off all the noses on the statues. Um, and things like that that you don't normally see. And even things to the point of like, here's the mosaic painted on a food cart. You know, it's like that no one preserves that. Like, oh, look, let's save this food cart painting for, you know, 2,000 years. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And so I'm going to use a couple things from other part of the Roman Empire because I couldn't find it relevant, uh, like, particular to that city, but it's the same kind of context, if that makes sense. So we're talking about Pergamum, but I'm going to use a couple images here, and I'm just kind of explaining why and where they came from. Just so you're, if you're interested, here is Patmos over here, but um, it's not marked on, on this map, but it was Pompeii and Herculean, and we're just south of, of Rome here in Italy. Well, Rome, but now Italy. Okay, so let's just talk. This is all building context for understanding this letter. There's a reference in this letter to where Satan dwells. And there's actually some argument on what that means. What What is it talking about here? The first thing you might think of is the emperor. We've been talking a lot about emperor worship, which was all over. But we already talked about how in several of the other cities, they're actually officially recognized as places of emperor worship. So it's probably not that. Um one commentator, Keener, says this. He says, There was a huge stone altar of Zeus, the Savior, with a podium that's 18 feet high uh, that you could see uh, in, in this in Pergamum itself. There was also an old temple of Augustus, one of the, the uh, earlier emperors, uh, which stood on a lofty rock citadel, and you could see it, anyone who approached the city. These are two options for what it means where Satan dwells. But I'm going to just take the view that I'm not sure what it's exactly talking about. But what we do know is that there was a lot of idol worship and a lot of false religion all over Roman culture. And I'm going to give you some examples here. Here's a, a, um, a, a carving at a temple. Uh, this is an emperor worship shrine or whatever. And... It kind of gives you a feeling for how important this was just a few years, about a decade before Pompeii and Herculaneum were destroyed by the volcano. Uh, there was an earthquake. And so it's interesting because you can see what really they valued because some of the things in the city had been rebuilt in the last 10 years and some weren't. One of the things that was definitely rebuilt was this emperor worship temple. And so it was really important to the people. Um, and some of the other temples there, they didn't rebuild yet. And so you can see that this was a big deal at the time. Another thing, there was not only was there idol worship throughout like large temples, there was household idol worship. So this is an example. This is a, um, a, a bust of either the present or maybe the past owner of a house, like a grandfather or the father, the patriarch of the house. And here's a little shrine that you would pass, this is a real one, uh, from Pompeii and Herculaneum, where both of these were preserved, that as people went into houses, you would see these little shrines set up for worship. And so there's idol worship all over the place uh, in, in Roman culture. There's household worship, there's temples where they worship the emperor and Zeus and other gods. And not only that, uh, Oops, sorry. Not only that, there was a guild. So people who worked in one job would get together and would be a part of a guild. And, and you would have 
benefits like uh, pay and, and work and things like that by being a part of these. Well, the difficulty for Christians was at these guild meetings, there was free food, but they were dedicated to, it was dedicated to an idol. And I'll read you a quote here again about this practice of idol worship, even in terms of your job. One of the most difficult temptations for Christians may have been the challenge to the Christian's livelihood by denying their ability to participate in trade guilds. Trade guilds involve meals honoring a patron deity at their meetings. And so you can imagine that whatever this means, Satan's throne, throughout the life of the Christian in Rome, in the Roman Empire, there was opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to compromise in terms of worship. Whether that's just visiting someone's house, trying to get a job, walking down the street, there was idol worship all over the place. Now, when we think of idol worship, we think of just worshiping an idol, a religious thing. But it wasn't that. There was a lot more to it, and it was a lot more disgusting than you might think. I'm going to read from Augustine. This was later on, but Augustine lived in, you know, when, when Rome was still around. This is later on, but this is just a quote from Augustine to kind of give you a feel for this. When we say idol worship and feast to the gods and things like that, what was kind of involved with that? This is kind of tongue-in-cheek. This actually sounds like it could be... Well, I'll just read it to you. Okay. This particular section, he's talking about the mother of the gods. Uh, it's just... But you can really put in many of these other deities um, that they worship, but this gives you a feel for what it meant to be involved in idol worship. Okay, he's talking about the songs they sang. The lowest kind of actors sang in front of this God, songs unfit for the ears even of the mother of one of those singing, to say nothing of the mother of any decent citizen or a senator, while as for the mother of the gods, um, let alone for the mother of the gods. For there is something in the natural respect that we have towards our parents that the extreme infamy cannot wholly destroy. And certainly those very idol worshippers would be ashamed to give a rehearsal of their performance in their homes before their own mothers of the disgusting and verbal obscenities that were involved. So I'll summarize that. It's, I didn't read it very well. And I'm, but basically he's saying you go and you go to these idol worshippers and you sing these songs to the mother of the gods. And he says, you wouldn't even sing that in front of your own mother. It's so bad. She would basically wash your Mouth out with soap if, if your mom heard you singing that. And his point is, there was some pretty disgusting things involved with these things. This wasn't just like, hey, we're going to worship this false idol. There was lots of other, um, even sexual things involved with a lot of this worship. Which comes into my next point, which comes up in this letter. But to give you kind of a feel for Roman culture, this was a big house. I can't remember if it's Pompeii or Herculaneum, but one of them, there's a big, one of the big uh, houses, and they name the houses because they don't know whose they were anymore, obviously, but they name them based on features. So like the house with the gold ring, like they found a gold or a golden bracelet, like they found 
or the house with the mosaic of this or whatever. Well, this big house this is like a very rich person which had multiple entrances and things. They named this house This is the third entrance, the house of the little brothel. So you can imagine why they name it that. So imagine uh, the culture you live in. These kind of things, are, there's an advertisement out here. Uh, um, they had an, uh, it's not shown in this picture, but there was a, you know, open everyone. Everyone knew. In fact, you've got this separate entrance, rich people did, with a big advertisement out front. I'm not even going to read it to you because it's really bad. But that's the kind of culture you, people are living in, Okay. Not only idol worship, but these other things mixed in, and not only were they mixed in, totally acceptable in cultures, uh, where you can just imagine, even today, a rich person with a big house can't put a sign out front uh, at their back door, you know, hey, this is what this is, this is, I'm making a little extra money back here, you know, um, and everyone knew it. And so, I'm saying all this to tell you, to give you a picture of the culture at the time, and also this all relates to this letter. So let's jump into the letter and all these things will tie together. Okay, we can turn the lights on now. Okay, all that's background. Now let's jump into the letter itself. Let's start with all these pieces that we've already talked about that come up in every letter. The first, the vision of Jesus. The vision of Jesus here is Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth with the sword coming out of his mouth. Again, we talked about how we don't want a Jesus that's two-dimensional where we only decide, I'm just going to take these verses. We want the real Jesus, which is described in the Bible. He's complicated. He's not just uh, all love. He's not just all wrath. Uh, There's all these different pieces, but particularly in this particular section, I'll read you a quote that we talked about with Ephesus here, but this we're going to talk about the opposite side here. Uh, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth goes, grows hard if it is not softened by love. So we talked about how Jesus isn't just one or the other. Um, we don't want to have love and not have truth. In fact, it's not even possible. We certainly don't want to have truth but not have love for God or for the people around us. And in this particular church, Jesus is reminding them the sword is the image of judgment at this time. The death penalty was delivered by sword. And Jesus is saying, there is judgment. And it coming, it's coming from Jesus. Judgment is going to come from Jesus. Jesus does love us, absolutely. And Jesus wants us to love others. We don't, we can't separate that from truth, from holding on to truth. And that's going to be Dividing. And that's particularly what this particular church has a problem with, that they're not dividing. They're loving uh, in what they think is love. But Jesus coming to them and saying, look, if you don't separate from this sin stuff, you're going to be lost. You need to repent. And so he's reminding them of who he is, that Jesus, the one who loves most, still has a sword coming out of his mouth. His word divides righteous and unrighteous, sin and unrighteousness. And for us to love in truth, we have to do the same. We have to understand that love doesn't just mean accepting everything. And so we see that all over the place in Jesus' life. 
I won't read all the verses, but you just might think about the woe to the Pharisees. You might think about Jesus promising judgment to Jerusalem and he's saying, Jesus tells them, there's not even going to be one stone left. There's going to be judgment. Um, it's not that he didn't love them. He wept, right? We read those verses about how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. So it was both. Jesus loved them. He deeply wanted them to repent in, to the point of tears were weeping over Jerusalem, the people that were about to kill him, and yet still warning them and saying, yeah, Judgment's coming, and this is what's going to happen, and you need to repent. And that same Jesus is the Jesus who knows what's going on in the churches, in all the churches, but particularly here in Pergamum. So that's what he wants them to remember. Now let's look at the commendations here. This is where he talks about how he knows what's going on. This is verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. We talked about that. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So let's stop there. There's some good things here. Um, they're holding fast to his name. They did not deny their faith, even to the point where one of them died. One of them was martyred. Those are all good things. And he is talking about how he knows what's going on, where they're, where they're at. He, Jesus is well aware of in this case, all the temptations that go into living where they live, whether that's particular idol worship that's going on there, as well as the whole Roman culture. But we could take that. That's true for them, but it's also true for us, isn't it? God knows what's going on in our life. God knows the culture we live in. God knows the particular temptations that we're living in. And what does He want us to do? He wants us to hold fast to His name. He wants, He don't want, He doesn't want us to deny the faith. And so He's commending them for that. We need to continue on in our faith. We need to hold fast to the name of Jesus. The thing that's striking about this is there's the commendation. They're holding fast to the faith. But look at the correction. This is the next verse, 14. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, all these visions of Jesus are always referring back to chapter 1 where we saw that Jesus was the one with the sword coming out of, his, out of his mouth. So this is an interesting combination because they're holding fast to the faith, some of them, and to his name and not denying it, even in the midst of persecution. But then what? Then they're comfortable with this idolatry and this compromise in the church. And so, let's talk about them, but then let's also apply it to our lives, to our, to us. The first is, obviously, that we can and they should avoid idolatry. We should not be comfortable coming to the faith and holding on to the faith and then mixing it with something else. Mixing it with the sins of our culture. Mixing it with idolatry of our culture. We don't want to do that. We can't have two masters. Jesus says no one can have two masters. Either you're going to hate the one or love the other. We don't want to be mixing Jesus, what he taught, with what's convenient, what's uh, acceptable. And it may have been the guild, the trade guilds or something like that, where it's like, well, I'll compromise a little here just for this, or I'll compromise a little here just for that. Um, Jesus is saying, no, that's not. If you're going to have me, have faith in me, don't forget there's a sword coming out of my mouth. Truth that divides. And so we want to avoid idolatry wherever that can be. And 
it could be lots of things. There's lots of areas that we could slowly slip into compromise. But there's more than that. There's not only that. We want to avoid passivity. We want to avoid passivity. I'll read you a quote here from Keener, um, a commentator. He says this, Although only a fraction of the church has succumbed to such teaching, this uh, mixing, Jesus tells the entire church that it, he has this against him and then calls on it to repent. In other words, if we choose to look the other way when compromise is occurring, then we must share the Lord's reproof. Okay. Think about that. And it's actually different. Later on, we're going to look at another letter where it's a slightly different situation. But in this particular case, in this particular case, some of them were holding fast to the faith, but then they were just okay with other people mixing it in, mixing these sexual morality, idolatry, and these other things in. Hold on to Jesus. Hey, Jesus is my savior. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm doing these other things over here, but ultimately, you know, Jesus died for my sins. That's not, that's not right. Um, you know, just like Jesus says in Luke, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Right? It's like, I want Jesus for the forgiveness, but I don't want Jesus to tell me, I don't want Jesus to be Lord. I just want him to forgive my sins. And that's not the case. That if we're going to have Jesus be our Lord, we want the real Jesus, right? And the real Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. That, that real Jesus is going to come to you. He knows what's going on in your life and in our church and in every church and in the church of Pergamum. And he's going to say, he's going to start poking. He's going to start cutting. And he's going to start dividing things off that we're compromising and he's going to convict us. And so that's a good thing, right? Isn't it good that Jesus loves us enough to not let us go to this particular church He's not just saying, well, they've compromised. I'm done with them. Writing a letter, convicting them, poking and prodding and saying, look, this is the area of need here for you. And you need to repent and grow in this area. This area of either mixing or even just passivity. That the Christian life is not just, I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to you know, clean my life up. Yeah, I've got all these concerns, but I'm never going to talk to people about it. Because... Well, I've got my stuff together. That's not right. If we really love people, we want truth and love, right? We want to be able to talk. We want to be able to confront. We've got to be a church where we can correct one another and where we do correct one another because we need it. We're not perfect. None of us are perfect. So we could say it this way. Same thing said a little different way. A true church is able to correct one another. Right? That's what he's saying here. You've got to repent. Even the ones that aren't mixing, you're, you're just letting it go on and you're not saying anything. You're not a real family. You're not a real church. So we want to, we want to avoid, we could say it this way. A true church is able to correct one another and we want to avoid hypocrisy. So think about hypocrisy, what hypocrisy is. There's like a couple ways that we kind of define hypocrisy or in common, the way we commonly use it in English. In some ways, there's kind of two ways that, at least in my mind, I think about it. One way is when you say one thing and do another. So it's like, oh, you say one thing and then you do the opposite. That's hypocrisy, right? It's like you're not, what you're saying doesn't match up with who you are. 
And so we we obviously want to avoid that. So if we're saying Jesus is Lord, then let's live like Jesus is Lord. If we're saying, Jesus, I'm coming to you, giving my whole, my life, my soul, my sin, everything to you, let's do it. Let's just not say it, let's actually do it. And so when the rubber meets the road and when there's times in your life when, when compromise, when there's a temptation to compromise, those things come out. Is Jesus really my Lord or something else? Think about Judas. Judas walked on with Jesus for a long time, but he had this money idol, right? And it came to a place where he had to decide, money or Jesus? And he chose money. And that's going to happen to all of us in our life. We're going to come to crossroads where we're going to have to decide. Maybe we might be able to go on for a little bit where we've got this, you know, something that's competing with Jesus, but we're going to come to a crisis moment where we have to decide one or the other. Jesus or money. Jesus or reputation. Jesus or, you know, whatever it is. And in those moments, who's really our Lord comes out. And it's a scary thing. The good news is, Jesus knows, right? Just this whole church, all these letters, Jesus knows what's going on and He's there to both correct us when we go off, but also to prepare us. And so we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to say one thing and do another. We don't want to have these conflicting values. There's another way we kind of talk about hypocrisy, which is like hiding who you really are, right? The word hypocrisy is is like you're putting on a mask. We don't want to do that either. We don't want to hide who we really are. Maybe this person, we don't know the details, all the details, but maybe this was hidden. Maybe they didn't know, right? Maybe the people in this church are like, oh my goodness, we didn't know. You know, it's like, and then they're like, who is it, (laughs) you know? Who did this? You know, like with Ananias and Sapphira where God just called out secret sin. Maybe that's the case. It doesn't seem like that's the case, but there may have been at least a mixture there. Um, it seems like he's saying to them, this is known and you need to correct it. There may have been a couple, though, where it was hidden. You know, We want to avoid that too, though. We want to be who we really are. If we've got a sin problem, um, and I kind of said this last week. I'm going to pause and take it aside. Thanks for putting up with me last week. <laughs> I actually said some things. I realized, oh wait, that was for next week. <laughs> I was just, I had a headache and I, I was like, I could feel myself struggling to say the, find the words, but maybe, maybe I always do that. So <laughs> anyways, thanks for putting up with me last week, but I said this last week and it was actually meant for this week. But anyways, um, we don't, Who we really are and what's really going on is going to come out to everybody eventually, right? We're all going to stand before God and it's all going to be revealed. And instead of pretending that we've got it all together, let's actually be honest about where we're at so we might actually be freed, be saved, be changed, right? If you have a a sin you're struggling with, you could hide it and pretend like everything's okay or you could be honest and actually get help and maybe... Everything in that area could be okay in the future through the blood of Jesus, through forgiveness, and through sanctification and help by the Spirit and through the people around you. Which one's better, pretending everything's okay or actually getting things resolved and actually getting help from God and from people around you? It seems obvious, but the cost is, you know, again, reputation is, uh, it's not easy. Um, And so... 
let's be a church that's honest with one another. And we could talk about it in terms of marriage, right? Like you don't wake up and tomorrow you're getting divorced and oh, I didn't know, you know, it's like everything was okay yesterday. That's not how it works, right? It's this slow simmering thing over time. It's kind of like a house. You know, it's like you live in a house. It's like if you smell smoke, uh, I smell some smoke. Well, I don't know. I'm going to ignore that because what if there's a fire? You know, I would, that would be bad. That'd be a bad thing. My house is on fire. So I'm going to pretend like I don't smell any smoke. And then, oh, well, actually you see flickering of flames. It's like, ah, boy, that, that looks, I'm just going to pretend that's not there because that would be bad if my house is on fire, you know? And then eventually the house burns down. I mean, that's what it's like with sin in our life. Like there's smoke, there's warning signs and let's get help before it all burns down because you're not going to be able to hide it forever because the whole house is going to burn down, <laughs> right? And so let's be honest with one another. Let's be honest with God and ask for help, get help, whether that's with your marriage. I mean, there could be people here and I don't know. I'm, I'm just, this is just an illustration. I'm not like, I'll use Andy because I know Andy and I, I'm not saying like Andy, you know, I'm not pointing at anybody. You know what I'm saying? I'm just talking in generalities. Um, if you got marriage stuff going on, ask for help. Ask another couple, say, Hey, you know what? We're really struggling with this. We're really having a conflict here. Um, and it's not getting better. Would you just help talk? Would you pray with us? Pray for us? Talk maybe through some of this with us. You could talk. I mean, Andy, um, you know, is willing to do marriage counseling or, or whatever, you know, the, it would be better to take a couple weeks and couple nights out of your week, uh, for the next month or two and get some things resolved. Then two years from now, it's this huge thing, right? Um, I'm just giving some practical examples of how we can avoid this kind of thing, um, by being honest, by asking for help. Jesus already knows, right? And the good news is Jesus wants to help. <laughs> That's what he's saying here. He's like, I'm, I'm there for you. I, I want you to repent. I want this to be changed. Okay. I'm going to point something out to you. It's kind of interesting. Okay. There's a phrase that comes up in the New Testament several times. Do not be deceived. And I want you to re, Think about what we just talked about, how we can't mix in sin with Jesus. Like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. He's going to be my Lord, but eh, this, this area doesn't really matter. You know, if, if I don't have victory in my X or Y and I know I'm just, you know, whatever, that's not a big deal. Now listen to these verses. This is an interesting thing that comes up over and over and over. Do not be deceived. I mean, I don't want to be deceived. You know, I don't think anyone wants to be deceived. But think about this. This is so strange and um, shocking to me how over and over and over this phrase, do not be deceived, is connected with this same idea. Okay? I'll read you just several verses here from the New Testament. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, but whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Okay, that's First John. Next one. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. 
For whatever one sows, that will one reap. For the one who sows his to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But to the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That's Galatians. Okay, another one. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It's really shocking there. It's like over and over and over there was this deception, even in the first century, that basically sin's not a big deal. Yeah, Jesus came to wash away our sin, but sin's not a big deal. Don't be deceived, right? If Jesus came to wash away our sin, doesn't He also want to free us from our sin? Don't be deceived. There's both. You've got freedom and forgiveness, both in Jesus. We don't want to be deceived into thinking and settling for just one because both are available. This is actually just before that verse in Galatians 6 that I read about not being deceived. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's forgiveness. There's forgiveness in Jesus for sin. There's also freedom. We can be cleared of charges, but we can also be changed on the inside. We want both. And so, this church... Pergamum. Some people were deceived, right? Some people were deceived, and then others were passive and were not helping. We're not, we're okay with it, basically. And we don't want to be like that. Um, it's a warning to us. Let's be honest. Let's be people who can receive correction and want it, right? We just read in our psalm, we just finished up the psalms in our small group, and we just read the verse about how a correction is like from someone who cares, I'm paraphrasing, from a brother in Christ, is like oil poured on your head. Like, let me receive it, you know? It's a good thing. And so we want to be open to that. And we also want to be brave enough to do that for one another. It's important. And it's what Jesus does, right? Don't we want to be like Jesus? We do. We do. I want to tell you a positive thing here. Let's read the last section. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. On that stone, no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, think about this. Repent. If not, I will come and war against you with the sword of my mouth. We can still repent. Jesus is saying there's still time. There doesn't have to be judgment. You've got time to repent. And if you repent, He's saying, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. That's good news. That maybe that for us, you know, whatever it is, we've still got an opportunity to repent. 
We, we can still escape judgment through the blood of Jesus, through repentance, through faith. We can still get help. Now it's time. Let's do it today. Um, we don't want any sin in our life that we're not, that we're okay with, that we're comfortable with, that we're decided, ah, this is, this is all right. One positive note just on this, you know, we looked at all these things about the culture. I was reading one uh, historian this week that's not a Christian at all, but basically was talking about some of these practices, the disgusting type stuff I can't even really get into, but he says, Paul, when Paul wrote, in, you know, some of these, this not here in, in Revelation, but some of the things Paul wrote, he referenced, and he said when people would hear things like, you know, every person is made in the image of God, it would be shocking to them. And when Paul said, I mean, think about Corinthians where Paul says, like, you're in Christ. Why would you be joined a prostitute? Remember that? Like, that's a shocking thing to hear. Like, whoa, why is Paul saying that? And this historian was saying that to them, it was the opposite. It's like Paul's saying, like, I can't do whatever I want. That's crazy. And now think about today. (laughs) Think about like God won. <laughs> like the fact that the vast majority of the world, the things that probably this letter in Pergamum is talking about, the kind of wicked things that it's talking about, now are legal in most of the world. That's awesome. Like God changed the world. <laughs> like people really believe every person is valuable. Like that's awesome. You know, we talked about last week, some of them are going to die and be martyred. It's like, where's the victory in that? I mean, literally just standing up for truth, for what Christ said, it's like, it really changed the world. Not that it's perfect. There's lots of things that aren't right. (laughs) Okay, there's a lot of things that are still messed up. But there's a lot of things that have changed. And it's actually quite amazing, really. I mean, women, uh, half of us here, you know, have our ladies. uh, Half our ladies, you guys. (laughs) Uh, But it's like, huge. That you have value, that you have a say uh, over things. Um, it's really, really an amazing thing, and I don't know. It was, it was interesting to me. Just this particular historian said, like the way he said it was Paul won, but the reality is God won, right? It's like God changed the world. People saw that what Christ said was true, um, so we can be thankful. Not that there's not ground to still be taken, you know. Okay. So that kind of reminds or leads to the last section, the hope section. That remember, each one of these letters ends with hope, ends with a vision of Revelation twenty-one and twenty-two, a piece of it, a reminder of what they're looking forward to. And this one has two manna, and I think the manna seems more clear to me than the stone. But the manna, you know, is from Exodus, where God provided for Israel. And I think it's a promise that God is going to continue to provide for His people. God's going to provide for us now and into eternity. He's never not going to be there. He's going to give us all we need, even in the difficult times, right? The manna was when they were crossing the wilderness. God is going to give you manna to get you through to the new Jerusalem, isn't He? He's going to provide you in Christ. You know, Christ is the bread of life with everything you need to get you through. And right now, we're walking through the desert, aren't we? We're not to Canaan yet. 
We're not there yet. We're not to the promised land yet. But who do we have with us? Christ, God. And what is He willing to provide? All that we need. Right? That's good news. In every area, all these areas we talked about, whether that's sin or body life, in the church, how do we relate to one another, whether that's temptation coming from the world, whether that's things in our own heart. There, there might be dispositions. There are dispositions in each one of us, things that tempt us that don't tempt the person next to you in the same way, that are particular weak spots for you. No matter who you are, what situation you're in, Christ knows, and He's willing to provide and help. That's good news. Okay, and then there's a second piece, not only the manna, but this second part I'm not as clear on, and neither are the commentators. There, there's some disagreement here. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except the one that receives it. Okay. Well, first kind of point of reference um, to this is that though there are several interpretations about the stones, I'll give you the one that seems to me to fit the best and is the most clear. In ancient courtrooms where jurors voted for acquittal or guilty, guilty or not guilty, they used, each one was given a white stone and a black stone. And in a capital case, which is probably here referenced, um, it's the capital case is probably in view and Jesus will overcome the verdict of the Pergamum Christians' persecutors at the final judgment. Basically, the idea that on the last day on Judgment Day, you're going to be not guilty. You're going to be forgiven. And that that's what the white stone represented. It really fits with this whole section, though, doesn't it? Because it's like what he's telling them is, you've got this sin problem. Repent. What is he offering? What's the hope? Forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness in Christ. You can be forgiven. We all have the opportunity to be not guilty. Why? Because we're perfect? No. Because of Jesus. Because we turn to Him. And so that's a wonderful thing. What about this new name? Well, I'll read you a verse here from Isaiah 62. A couple verses. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. And you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no, no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no, no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, here's the name, my delight is in her. Well, do we know exactly what this is? Well, he says we're not going to know. So it kind of makes me feel good that... <laughs> You know, I can't figure it out, which is fine. Uh, he says we can't figure it out, basically. Uh, no one will know except the one, one whom is written, but. Except the one who receives it, it says. Now, we could get into all the details on that, but here's one thing I feel like we can say with confidence. For those who are in Christ, who are forgiven, that this is true, that God knows you, particularly you as an individual and that he delights in you and that you're forgiven despite all your sins. I mean, think about that. Let's think of the reverse, okay? That might help to see the wonder of it. Think about standing before God on judgment day and God bringing up all your sins and saying, you're guilty, 
I don't delight in you because of all the sins that you had. They were bad, and I hate them. And to be forsaken. Well, that would be terrible. But what's the, what's the offer in Christ? It's to stand before God and know I deserve a black stone. I deserve to be found guilty. And then to receive a white stone. Forgiveness through Jesus. And to be called not forsaken, not guilty, not terrible sinner, but beloved. My delight is in her. And that's really what's going to happen in Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem. We're going to be the bride of Christ. Every Christian is. And God, God really loves us. We talked about this at our small group too. It's like, do you really believe that? That God really loves you? And I heard one pastor say that when he asks people that, when he does counseling, do you really believe God loves you? People will say like, yeah. And they know the right answer. And so he says, to get him to actually think, he says, do you believe God likes you? And he says, people then like hesitate, like, hmm. And I think the point is not just to know the right answer, but to think deeper, to ask yourself, how do I really feel? Because you could know in your mind, oh, God loves me. You could feel in your heart like, well, God, God loves me, but it's kind of a begrudging. Uh, he loves me, but he really is pretty displeased with me because I'm pretty bad. The reality is, is, I mean, think about this church here, Pergamum. They got a lot of problems. They got some pretty serious problems. What's the offer to them? Same offer to everybody else. Forgiveness, freedom in Jesus, and his love that he really cares for them. And that's an offer to you too. That God really loves you. Repent. Trust him. And believe it. Don't just know it in your mind, but actually believe that. You know, let's say it this way. Imagine, or think back in your mind. The last time you really messed up and you just felt, oh, why did I do that? I really messed up there. And he had to ask for forgiveness. In that moment, did you feel relief? Like, wow. Thank you, God, for forgiveness, and thank you that you love me through all this. Even now, my worst moment, you you love me right now. And and that is washed away. And there's not distance. I'm not trying to earn my way back or clean myself up, but you love me right now. I haven't turned it around yet or anything like that, but you love me. That's how it should be. And I'm not saying that as somebody who does it perfectly, right? I'm saying that as person who doesn't there's lots of times where i mess up and i think in my mind the anti-gospel which is i'll do better tomorrow instead of god forgive me today and i know you love me right now and you'll help me tomorrow not i'm going to do better tomorrow but forgiveness and freedom in jesus so summary we can be thankful that god knows where we are god knows the difficulties in our culture the sin in our life the temptations that are particular to us and our heart, as well as things around us in our particular situation. What does he want from us? Well, he wants us one to trust him and to look to him, to listen to him in his word. Like he's got us, he's got a word for us, a sword coming out of his mouth, the truth of God, but it divides and that it divides truth from error. It divides right from wrong. And so we just listen to him and we want to be holy. Right? We don't want to be okay just being forgiven 
and not want freedom and not receive freedom. We want both. And it's offered. We want to be truthful with one another. We want to avoid hypocrisy and passivity. We want to be able to correct one another. We want to be able to receive correction. We want, uh, we want a real church. And a real church both gives and receives correction. What else? We've got hope. God's going to provide for us. Is it going to be easy trying to be loving and truthful in our culture and know where the line is? Where is compromise? Where is Christian liberty? It's not easy. But God's going to help us. God's with us. He's going to provide. He's our manna until we get to heaven. He's going to provide for us all that we need. Wisdom, love, help, guidance, people around us. And what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to being right with Him. And we're going to receive that white stone not based on how great we are, just like Pergamum is going to receive it. For those who really did repent, they're going to receive it not because they had it all figured out, but because of Jesus. And that's our hope. And we want to really believe that God loves us, God delights in us, that God knows us individually, you as an individual. God loves and delights in you if you're trusting Him despite your sin. That's a good thing. Well, why don't we pray one more time here together and then if anybody's got any comments or questions, we'll... Father, thank You so much for loving us. I pray these things would be helpful and real. Uh, we don't want to be hypocrites. I pray that You would put people in our life that love us enough to uh, correct us, contradict us. Um, I pray You'd give us clarity. I pray You'd help us not to be deceived. I pray You'd help us to just repent. Um, we need You. We need help. We're looking to you for help. You promise if anybody lacks wisdom, we can ask and you'll give it. So we're asking, just give us wisdom in all these areas. I pray if there's any hidden sin or anything, we're just even a blind spot we're unaware of, you show it to us. Um, thank you so much, Jesus, for loving us, being willing to die for us. We're asking all this in your name. Amen.